Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Early last year, when I was writing about the 2022 midterms, I pretty much had the same conventional view that everyone else did. It was the first midterm for a new president whose popularity was low and who was overseeing an economy in distress. We'd seen this movie many times before, and it almost always ended the same way. The party occupying the White House would lose in a wave election. It was as close to physics as you get in American politics. In fact, some pundits and political scientists even had names for this school of thought. We were structuralists or fundamentalists, because that's what mattered, the structure or fundamentals of the race. If you tell them the president's approval rating and the state of the economy, the fundamentalists could tell you roughly how many seats the president's party would lose. And those fundamentals in 2022 said Biden would lose about 20 to 30 seats in the House. But there was one political analyst who I read and talked to who regularly challenged that idea. And to the extent that I avoided the red wave prediction trap, it was because of this person. His name almost never appeared in the press. His writings, which turned out to be prescient, were off the record for a private audience that included some of the most influential people in Washington. His name is Michael Podhorzer, and he just stepped down after a decade as the AFL-CIO's political director a job that has historically been an enormously influential position in democratic politics. And I'm in his kitchen in Tacoma Park right now, and we're going to nerd out with Michael about what he sees as the most important trends in American politics, why he believes so many people got 2022 wrong while he got it right, and how he's thinking about 2024. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. You know, the reason I wanted to talk to you, knowing that you're sort of more free to talk, is as I was covering this last midterm, you and I would occasionally talk. Yeah. You, you were swimming against the tide of opinion. <laughs> yeah. And whenever I was writing about the midterms and the dynamics, I always had a little like Michael <laughs> Podorzer on my shoulder <laughs> thinking, you know, if Podorzer's right about this, a lot of us are wrong. The thing that I think was always in my mind was just that your view that there was an anti-MAGA coalition that came together in 2018, came together again in 2020, and you believed was likely to stick together as long as Trump and MAGA was front and center in the election. Right. A lot of Democrats and Democratic strategists who I would talk to about that were skeptical. 
And I remember we would have uh, some arguments and conversations about that. But lay out sort of what your thinking was going into this midterm. And, and I'll point out, in hindsight, you were one of the people who got the midterms right. What did you know and what did you see at the beginning of the cycle? Especially in Washington, you're talking about all the people who thought, oh, no way, you know, like, forget it. It's like, there's a presidential midterm. He's going right. to get wiped out. There's right. inflation. There's a sort of he physics bought, to it. Right. Biden's underwater. The other six presidents who are underwater lost like an average of 27. Like, you're just full of shit, you know? But what I think happened after 2016 was that a portion of American voters who really never believed there was that much at stake in our elections, decided that, you know, after seeing Trump, yes, there was. And when I say seeing Trump, I don't just mean people who were revolted, right? I mean, it was there were a lot of people in America who never thought the Republicans were bad enough and decided to come out as well. But for people who are just sort of focused on horse race polls, what you don't see is that in 2018 midterm, Turnout went up by 14 points. You have no idea how ahistorical that is. Going back to Reconstruction, the next biggest increase was half that. And the next biggest increase after that was half of that. Mostly midterm to midterm or presidential to presidential, it goes up or down by no more than three points, right? This is crazy. There's just like a whole new set of people who've decided to become voters. And the same thing happened in 2020. We saw this just in the culture at large. Right, exactly. Social media, all these people who suddenly decided to. Yeah. I mean, I would joke about this sometimes because I was engaging in conversations with people who only know politics starting in 2016 (laughs) and nothing before that. But it's a sign of like, holy shit. Right. And so in midterms, there have been, you know, a group of voters in America for all time who will vote because it's my civic responsibility. And in midterms, until 2018, they made up two-thirds to three-quarters of everyone who voted. And for at least 20 years, they were a Republican group. And right now, sort of modeling suggests that they were about two, two and a half points Republican. The group of voters who have joined the electorate in 2018 and 2020 are about 12 points Democratic. And so... The new, if you were using the word physics, the new physics is that now that conservative group in this midterm was barely half of the people who voted. And so the question of how Democrats were going to do for me was how many of those people who were activated in 2018 and 2020 realized this was, darn it, the third time they had to come out to vote against Trump. Crisis wasn't over. Right. And that's what these voters viewed it as. Right. They were not voters who still are habitually engaged, when they understand, Dobbs made this clearer, that they will really do those things, that they will come out and vote. And, you know, one of the ways that suggests for people to think about it is kind of like Super Bowl ratings, that the people at the network know that all of the viewers who watched all the regular season games are going to show up and watch. But what the ultimate ratings are is going to depend on which city's teams are in the Super Bowl, and how much buzz there is. Is there something controversial happening, right? And that's what these voters are like in a way. And that's what's happening here, right, is that those voters who can vote or not vote, if it's reaching a high decibel level and they understand what's going on, they're going to show up again. So for me, look, thinking through the midterms, right, it's 
exactly as you said. And I was writing about this even almost from right after he was sworn in, right? Is that Trump or Biden? Biden. This group especially. Yeah, this group. Who is this group? I mean, the, the shorthand in the media is suburban moderates. Yeah. What's the sort of deeper way to understand this group? thing about demographics is kind of like the way you do it at cocktail parties, but not in campaigns. If I'm a campaign manager, I don't think, how do I get this many suburban moderates? How do I get this many Latino, whatever? You know, I don't think about it that way. I think about how do I get all the people who support my candidate to come out and vote? And I don't really care what demographic group they fall into. And what's so strange about the addiction the media has to the demographic categories is that in another part of their brain, they say that everybody is like a entrenched partisan, right? And so if everybody's an entrenched partisan, isn't that the segment? Like, why are we pretending we don't know that within, say, suburban voters, they're pretty much all decided to? And that the things that really distinguish the folks who might go either way is not paying attention to politics very much because one of the categories that I created that I think is pretty useful is what I call partisan bystanders. And if you take any of the surveys that Politico's done, and just like go back to your thing, look at, create a banner point for people who um, say somewhat approve or disapprove on both parties or very much disapprove of both parties. And you get probably 10 to 12% of the sample. And those are your swing voters, right? Because we've gotten to the point where pretty much everyone else hates one or the other party and is just not going to vote for them, yeah. right? The and Negative partisanship. Yeah, and it's kind of that simple, right? And then when you look at that category, it's a very heterogeneous group. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't say, oh, well, this group is characterized by demographic X, right? And in terms of who those folks are, it's the people who have generally not paid that much attention to politics. One way to think about it is like the Midwest diner. There's big table, there's one really loud person there, and a lot of people who really don't care sitting around. And those are the swing voters, right? Yeah. When you were making this argument at the start of the last cycle, how did it go over in Democratic circles. What were the conversations that you were having with party strategists? Well, I didn't do many because I think the, and this is unfortunate, but true, that the voices that have to raise this alarm really need to be much further beyond either political party because it has to be seen as an objective reality, not as a political tactic. What I was advising or really thinking was important was first that they get the independent commission done, but of course they filibustered that. And then that the committee happened, and then that they made clear that this was criminal activity. Consequences for January 6th, right. not memory holding that. Right. That was the most important thing that happened because yeah. really try to imagine this midterm outcome without the hearings. We would have had six months of inflation or some crazy Biden stories that we don't even know about because people would be looking for other stories. But the thing that the 
media felt that the public didn't care, did not understand, is a much, much more important thing going on in this country, which is that especially beginning with the Great Recession, this has been a country where people are too big to jail, where the bankers crash the entire economy, no one goes to jail. For some group of voters, you get Abu Ghraib, no consequences, right? You get one thing after another where no one in authority is ever held responsible and often fail up. And so for all the other reasons, plus this one, the hearings were important, right? Because it's trying to rebuild credibility in our law enforcement and judicial institutions that, in fact, you maybe were not too big to jail. Maybe you actually should have consequences for leading a lethal assault on the capital of the United States, right? And because the opinion class is so myopic in the way it looks at its polling, it reinforced that prejudice, right? Because the polls at that point would ask a question like, how important is January 6th to you in your thinking about the midterm vote, you know, last year in 2021? And it would always be at the bottom of the list. Right. And the truth is that in that phrasing, literally, it would have been for me too. Compared to climate change or or something. Right, exactly. Exactly. But if you ask the question, how important is it to you to keep the people who led the insurrection out of office, that would shoot up. And that was the question that needed to be on the ballot. And that was what it was in about, you know, a dozen states. The Kerry Lake, right, was about, do you want that to be your government? That's January 6th there. But if you take this really super literal, narrow view of a poll that says, oh, people don't care about January 6th, and don't understand they do care about having a government that's not led by people like that, then you make the exact wrong decision about whether or not to do the hearings. That, what you call myopic view of the the media's reading of the polls, led a lot of people in the media to say the public doesn't care about intangible things like democracy, right? They care about filling up the gas in their car. That's something they deal with every day. And if Carrie Lake, you know, she may have been, she she might be one of these uh, crazy Trump people, but she's taking on inflation. And there was this sort of narrative, if you could stick to kitchen table issues, even if you were, you know, a January 6th supporter, you could get swept into office. The election was not about democracy, right? And if you think the election was about democracy, then you really misunderstand and you can like sort of ask the question you asked. Because the truth is that for most Americans, democracy has not been working very well for a long time. There are a few ways in which America is unique in sort of Western countries, right? In that it never went through what happened in Europe where you had actual fascist parties in power. And even though there are few people who are still alive for that, you still in an election like the French elections, right, know that Le Pen is the fascist and Macron was not. And you didn't have this sort of pretend campaign where you said, what's Le Pen's position on gas prices, right? Because <laughs> the only thing that mattered about Le Pen was- Right, that- because there was a vocabulary- and you that, as a voter in Europe just know, right, we've got right, a little history here. So right. You know yeah. that it is different to live in a country that is fascist than it is in one that isn't, 
And so it's a very clarified thing. And some people are for it, for sure. But because there's a vocabulary, there's a history, you know that, in fact, there isn't one eternal kind of system, and it can change, and it's clarifying. But here, because there's never been something like that, there's no word for not democracy in the United States. And that's a problem, because if there were, and I think MAG is starting to become that, but without it, then you're like in this squishy, really democracy kind of situation. And so what defeated these MAGA candidates was not a rallying around democracy, which was properly seen as far-fetched to people. It was a resistance to kind of MAGA world. And that's what I was arguing, why it was important for January 6th to be back out there to remind people like, yeah, this really can happen in this country. It just did. And if you elect Mastriano or Lake or these folks, you're basically said bringing that to your state. And that's what brought people out. It wasn't like democracy winning. One of your streams of thought yeah. early in the cycle was about the dangers of inflation and how a cycle of inflation can lead to really uh, right-wing fascist governments. And I remember that being a sort of obsession of yours early in the cycle. And a lot of your writing was about how Democrats can evade that outcome. Right. Tell us a little bit about that relationship between inflation and authoritarianism. And do you believe that we're out of the woods when it comes to that concern. And I assume you believe it's these other forces that helped you know, save us from that fate right. in the last midterm. There's a way in which people who have enough resources themselves cannot relate to how devastating inflation can be for ordinary people, right? That it isn't an issue like almost any other in that for most Americans who are already having to calculate how they're going to have enough money for rent at the end of the month. The psychic burden of not even knowing what the prices are going to be in between now and the end of the month just create this enormous mental overhead so that you are thinking about like how to manage your bank account and not overdraft and all of those things almost continuously suddenly. And what I was concerned with was Democrats or anybody really thinking that this is just another issue that, well, this is all corporate greed, which a lot of it was, but that that doesn't matter to the person who doesn't know if they're going to have enough money or if they have to get another job or whether they're going to be able to actually afford to buy their kid the thing they want, right? It's like that uncertainty is really alien to people who've never felt it. And what I was trying to caution was that this can be a real third rail. And if you position yourself as just, oh, it's not really a problem, just these bad price gougers or something like that, you are not just missing what people are feeling. You're sort of announcing yourself as out of touch with their lives. Mm -hmm. And that, on the other hand, a lot of elected fascist leaders have used that for that reason to their effect because they can say, we know what you're feeling like and, and identify with it and don't even have to have a solution to it. 
But in the contrast between caring about it and trying to change the subject is what the problem is. Speaking of not having a solution, I noticed that the first bills of the new Republican House did not address <laughs> inflation, yeah. even though that was the majority of the ads that were yeah. run. So one complicating factor in the, the anti-MAGA coalition is that Republicans won more votes for the House. Yeah. So, and I've seen a number of analysts take on this issue. What's your explanation for why did Republicans win more votes in the House? And why did that not translate, as it has in previous cycles, into a, a much bigger majority? So with a couple of minutes, there are a couple things there that you snuck in to unpack. The first is the question of why didn't they win more seats? Now, this was a big concern. Right, right. right. <laughs> but but the, if that's actually kind of weird because- Well, everyone's the, been, people on the left they, have been saying that there's such an unfair advantage to Republicans in the House that a majority of oh, oh, Democratic votes Sorry. don't translate into- Right, right, right. The thing that's anyway. kind of strange here in terms of the people who feel like Republicans didn't get enough seats yeah. for winning nationally is that when you do the adjusted national vote total, and when I say adjusted, I mean, and this is something like- all an analyst do, is account for the fact that each party has a different number of uncontested seats, so you adjust for that. Okay. And so when you do that, in 2020, Democrats won the national House vote by 2.7 points. And when you do that this time, Republicans won the House by about two points. And basically, they both got 222 seats. So- it is a function of the overhang from the first week after the election, where people who should have known better that the California votes hadn't been counted thought that Republicans had won by three or four or five points. Got it. And then said, well, why do they only have this many seats? Right? They have the same number of seats as that percentage of the national vote is, just like Democrats did in 2020. But they have the same margin in the House seats as they did in the House votes. There's nothing to explain there. In terms of why they won more votes nationally, this gets to what I've called red wave blue undertow, right? There were 15 states that Cook rated from lean to lean, and they had someone MAGA on the top of the ticket. In those states- We're talking about 15 Senate races? 15 states. It could have been a governor that was lean to lean, or and in Alaska, the House, because it's that large. Okay. Right. So those 15 states. In those 15 states, if you just looked at the midterm there, Democrats did pretty much as well as they did in the blue wave year, right? Step back for a second. Whitmer, Evers- won this election where Democrats were two points underwater by a greater margin than they won in 2018 when Democrats were seven and a half. It was a that good a year, right? Shapiro, same thing, won by more than Wolf. And there's a way in which people just, by just insisting on looking at the whole national scope, get this muddy picture. But yeah. it's two very- some regional variation. Right. There's two really clarified elections. In those states where it was a MAGA war, Democrats did better than they did in their wave year. Turnout in those 15 states was exactly as high as it was in the record-breaking 2018 year. In the other 35 states, it was five points less. And the people who want to explain 
um, all of this by, you know, swing voters or Republicans saving the republic or something, you take a look at Michigan or Pennsylvania. In both cases, you had no question that there were swing voters, Republicans, who just thought Mastriano was too much. And so that's why Shapiro won by as much as he did. But none of those explanations explain why Michigan flipped both state legislative chambers or Pennsylvania flipped one. The reason is because what I said at the beginning about this new tranche of voters who lean Democratic. And because they came out to vote against Mastriano, they voted Democrat all the way down the ticket. And Democrats didn't do quite as well as Shapiro did, right? Because the swing voters swung back to being Republican at those levels. But you can't explain how well in those states Democrats did as well as they did by just thinking about these prudent swing voters deciding things at the top of the ticket. In those 15 states, Democrats won. They did better than Biden. House candidates in the competitive races in what I call the blue undertow states did better than Biden did in 2020. Whereas if you look at the 35 states, it was exactly on the modeling. Democrats did just as badly as everyone had predicted. It gets to the idea that what no one thinks about when they look at how well, say, Democrats are going to do in the House, it's all based on what people say about the House. But you don't take into account who shows up for the election. And if you have more Democrats coming out because there's a top-of-the-ticket battle over abortion or over a MAGA candidate, the model for all the things it throws in doesn't throw in the turnout that's driven by a different race. There's on no the Mastriano like not. Right. So when you say red wave, blue undertow, red wave in 35 states, yeah. blue undertow in 15. Right. I was going to ask you, how, you know, the big outliers, New York and Florida. Right. You would just throw those into the 35. Oh, yeah. But not, they're not particularly unique in the red waves that existed there. No, and it's what you would have predicted in those states. And this is where I think the media, especially backing away in October from covering all of the continuing disclosures about MAGA criminality and all of that, had a big effect. Because it's impossible to believe that in Arizona, which is not a deep blue state, Katie Hobbs beats Carrie Lake. While in New York, George Santos gets elected, right? People in New York are not voting with the same information that people in Arizona are. Zimmerman will tell you, even if Santos had been found out that he was a big liar, yeah. he's not sure he would have won that race. Right. I, I think that's right. The issue of crime really was right. effective on Long Island and in right. other well, places in New York. The issue worked because the media was covering crime. In Arizona, it didn't work because the media was covering this MAGA contest. What I'm saying is that if voters in New York, New Jersey, and California had understood that the election was about making Kevin McCarthy Speaker of the House, right. Right. that crime wouldn't have looked the same way. People would have come out, right? Okay. And the, yeah. on the crime point, the crime explanation of what happened perfectly explains what happens with the regular voters, right? They're going to show up. They're looking, what are the issues? And, oh, it's crime. Well, I'm going to vote Republican then. These are voters that are open to either side. 
Right. Yeah. Not just open to other stuff, but they're the people who are going to show up regardless, right? Got it. And for whom there is this pull of like, what's the issue? Then there's another group for whom the what's the issue matters not about who they're going to vote for, but whether they're going to vote at all. Because the people who would have turned out if they understood that they had to stop MAGA again were not thinking about crime as the issue. Right. In this last midterm, right, if you take most people saying like about 10% of people are swing voters, right, then there were 11 million swing voters in the electorate, right, because there were about 111 people who showed up, right? And everybody's only focusing on what made those 11 million people vote the way they did. There are 46 million people who voted in 2020 and didn't vote in 2022. Four times as many. No one is asking the question, why did they stay home? That's the story. And your answer to that is the salience of the issues that right. mattered in 2020 to them wasn't there. Right. And a lot of it had to do with state and local differences. Right. And what the media was saying this election was about. A simple way to describe what you're talking about is state by state or even district by yeah. district, how salient either Dobbs or MAGA was, right. was the key? Sure. Part of the difficulty in, in explaining this or talking about it is what people didn't like about when Trump was president, not all the same thing. So you can't say it was this one issue that did it. Yeah. It's the collective of miserable, which makes it really hard to sort of put on a survey Mm -hmm. You know, something that would be the marker for people who were reacting to the idea of that happening. On Dobbs, I mean, some, yeah. some analysts have noted that in states where there really was no fear of abortion rights being taken away, like yeah. New York, that it took it off the table for a lot of Republicans. Do you see that as an important factor in the, in the midterm? I think that for voters in New York, the sense that Dobbs would not affect them personally made it more difficult to see more broadly that they were actually voting in their house races on Kevin McCarthy. Right. And that in 2024, most or all of those Republicans who won in those three states are going to lose because those voters are coming back because it's a presidential election in just the same way that the Democrats who won in 2018 because Republicans stayed home lost when it was 2020. And that's my point, is that we now have a group of voters who will vote almost like it's a presidential election when they know they're voting against MAGA, but really don't get involved. So to actually to go back in the example you were doing with crime in New York, if that wasn't really motivating to you, then the fact that the media was talking about it didn't connect with you as a reason to go vote. But yeah. we've seen you know, over the last several elections that when the media is talking about MAGA or any of those things, then those people come out. And I think one of the interesting things that I'm doing more work on right now is, ironically, everybody immediately after the election who was doing polling said, look, we were right this time. We got it right in our final, all of that. The high standard polls all did do well. Right. And so there are two ways to look at what's wrong with that statement. The first is that they were very close on the trial heat, right, on what the vote was going to be. But these are the same people who told us that democracy and MAGA weren't going to win in the election. And so to me, that's an even bigger error 
because it's um, not something where you're trying to just guess the vote before it happens. It's like actually reporting on what's happening in America, which is the primary responsibility of the media. So if I were to want the media to get one or the other right, I'd want them to be accurately telling us what people care about than that they are only, you know, half a point off rather than a two points off this year. The second thing is that if and I think it's pretty true. You believe that this time they were doing a pretty good job of measuring the trial heat. Then there has to be a question about why in the last month, when the media generally stopped covering Trump and MAGA and all of those things, that moved by about a point or a little more towards Republicans. And then if you think about this midterm, with Democrats doing a point better, it is the election I thought we should have. But because at the end, the media just kind of lost interest and used their polling to say people don't care about it, it was just self-fulfilling. And that was what I think took the edge off in places like New York and New Jersey, California, and mm-hmm. sort of let the blue states go red. Given what we've been talking about and the results of the last three elections, you've got this whole new school of Democrats saying Trump is really good for the Democratic Party. And you know, you even got people like Howard Dean and Terry McAuliffe saying, I hope he's the nominee. So how should your party, how should the Democrats think about MAGA, think about running against it? There was a big discussion in the last cycle about encouraging Republican primary voters to uh, uh nominate the most extreme candidates because Democrats correctly, it turned yeah. out, thought they would be easier to beat. Other people said, no, that's dangerous. Democrats should always be about marginalizing uh, these people, not elevating them in, a, in, in, a, in any way. Um, so lots to unpack there, but what, what do you think about that from a strategic point of view and going into 2024? Um, what, Demo- what should Democrats be thinking Yeah, about these dynamics? And it seems like they help them, <laughs> right? The, one of the things that makes our, our politics really not suited to the kind of attack we're under for MAGA is the, sustain, the, the sustaining of an idea, especially for federal elections, that voters should evaluate just the candidates in their district without understanding that the only the only or certainly the most important vote any member of the House or Senate is going to cast these days is for majority leader or speaker of the House. Because, right, the country will go in one or two different directions if Democrat or Republican selected. And no matter how much you, if you're a Democrat, it's why we get Herschel, you know, people voting for Herschel Walker, right? That's unimaginable 15 years ago if a, even in a Republican state, if a Republican candidate were that disqualifying. And the reason they're voting for him is because they want Mitch McConnell to run the right. Senate. Well, yeah. they don't want Democrats to run the Senate. Yeah. So right. they'll take anyone. Right. They will yeah. take anyone. Yeah. Right. And there and are places there's where- There's certain logic to that. Oh, no. There's, yeah, that's my point. Right. right? I mean, it's, that, yeah. it's that the media and a lot of nonpartisan democracy groups keep trying to sustain a very dangerous myth that it's anything other than that now. Right. 
that you should just take a lot of time and study both candidates and what are their positions on these issues. Because for federal office, it doesn't matter. Right. Right. Look at the way McCarthy's treated Santos since the election. Right. It just doesn't matter. You're just voting. It's become parliamentary. And and the media and the nonpartisan groups have not have not reflected that. That would mean playing a little less, paying a little less attention to every detail of a candidate's biography and life and what they had for breakfast. Right. and And a little bit more to. Right, what, what, what those parties are going to do, right? And and what I think was enormously irresponsible in the coverage this time was that that while there was, and this was a positive development, there was sort of the move towards covering, oh, these are denier candidates. Like that was like the media sort of like swallowing hard and saying, yes, we're going to go that far, Right. But not saying that it was a denier party and front and center, right? That they were going to vote for a denier Speaker of the House, whether they were a denier or not, right? Yeah. That they were going to vote for a Speaker of the House who in that moment where it wasn't quite clear where the Republicans were going to go with Trump, who went down to Mar-a-Lago to rehabilitate him. And I guess the flip side of that is – what your advice would be is when you're covering a moderate Republican who goes out of but there their are no way mo- to there are, distance themselves. There are no moderate Republicans. That's the point, right? And, 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 and we're talk, get, let's talk specifically. Let's talk about like the House. Okay, right. House. There Republic- is no such thing as a moderate Republican. So the how many how many House Republicans won in a Biden district this time? Eighteen. Eight, okay, eighteen. Right. And you would not count a single one of those as a moderate Republican, no, because because they voted for McCarthy, right? Because the, whether they like the the stakes for the country are too high to say there's something okay about someone who in a town hall says yeah Trump's crazy, but then votes against impeaching him or votes against the January sixth commission or votes for all of those things or votes now for this committee to investigate the DOJ right. That's not a moderate, it, right? There are Republicans who sometimes talk like what we might strain to think of as moderate, but in the world, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. And the thing about, and again, where, the, where no one was covering this, right, is that it, they basically gave the party a pass on, on its complicity in January 6th, Right. I mean, one of the things there should have been were when the January 6th hearing started and we started to get access to like the Meadows texts and all of that. Yeah. It became clear that all the things people were suddenly really understanding, Trump knew that he had lost, all everything you thought about that, about the armed, all the things, right? Yeah. Should have been a story. So did almost every Republican in real time, right? right? They all knew in at just as much as Trump, right? And yet they let the um, challenge to the electoral votes happen, right? If we think of Trump inciting it because of it's going to be wild and all the things, and I'm not letting him off, obviously, 
But if Hawley and Cruz hadn't created the appearance of a way to overturn the election a week before by saying, we're going to do this, there is a procedure to fix this, it would have changed the valence of what happened on January 6th a lot, right? Because if you look at like the the you know 4chan and all the the social media right part of the pitch for coming to Washington on January 6 was that there was going to be a challenge to the vote and Pence would overturn it yeah. and all of that those republican senators were complicit in that lie right and but were never held they never like you know and then knowing that they voted against the commission they were actually obstructing justice to protect themselves but no one reported it that way, right? And that, that's, that's my point, that, that we have a party that tried to overturn our Constitution, whatever you're going to call it, and to the extent the press was willing to put its toe in the water, it was to say these people who had never run for office didn't think the election was legit. You, don't, you think it shouldn't take being Mastriano or Kerry Lake Right. For the press to sort of understand what's going on here. And report that. I think, like, you know, this is like the press does understand it for the most part, but it's like like crossing the line and sharing that with with people. All right. So go, going back to the 2024 yeah. conversation, what's the – we're at the start of that cycle now. Um, how do we – how should Democrats be looking at the Republican primaries, be looking at MAGA? Should they be rooting for this movement to continue to help them win elections? Should they be rooting for Donald Trump to win the nomination? Um, or should they be trying to find ways uh, – this this idea seems to have really gone out, out, out of fashion, but at the beginning of the rise of Trump, there was a lot of talk about Democrats and moderate Republicans banding together. Um, to 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 defeat yeah. uh, MAGA, um, what's the what what would you recommend your party? What are the ways you yeah. would recommend Democrats think about these things? I mean, I don't want to. I don't. I'm not a Democratic advisor. Uh, All right, fair enough. The, but you're the, in a coalition. The, that is, but I think that. But to your point, I think the 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 reason to go back to what we were saying about the what people were wondering about in terms of. Uh, some Democrats helping the furthest right Republicans win. That would not have been necessary if the media clearly stated that it didn't matter which of them was going to get elected, they were going to do the bad things, right? That And that's the same answer to your question about Trump. If the media is willing to admit that really there are no Republicans who are not MAGA, then you don't need to root for Trump. You don't need to like go there in your thinking, right? The problem, the, the what, and, and this is a systemic problem for our country, which is that it is so much easier to tell a story about a lone wannabe dictator than about an anti democratic movement. Right. So it sounds like, if I'm reading between the lines, your fear is that this movement metastasizes in a way where the Republican Party gets a little bit smarter. They don't nominate the Mastrianos and the Kerry Lakes. Trump himself is 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 not uh, the face of the party, but it gets more sophisticated. And the what you would think of as as this as this virus 
just sort of goes underground. And well, the so, movement yeah. strengthens with a, with a sort of happier face. So I think, or more electable. Yeah, faces. it's. I like that you you said it that way. There's a chance for me to say something that <laughs> um, that I that I really think is important. Is parties don't decide who their nominees are, right? Primary voters do. Yeah. Right. And so there isn't like a room where Republicans get more sophisticated and decide to nominate someone else. Fair. Right. Yeah. That is not the way politics works now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like who we could, saw that in 2016. Right, they tried right, everything they could. Exactly. There's no kill right, switch. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That and so to to think that that is like the way this is all co- happening just completely misses the world we live in. Right. Which is why why MAGA is so dangerous. Right. Because they're going to have to become Trump to win. Because right. Because the like DeSantis Trump is not about which direction the Republican Party goes. It's who's sitting with the steering wheel. It's going to go to the same destination, right? The, because when you, in another part of our brains, we know that at least of a third of Americans don't believe the 2020 election was legitimate, like are all in on all those things. And but that, don't, don't you think that part, don't you think one of the reasons this movement is so like electrified is that you had Trump sort of, you know, plug into the you know the outlet like he 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 was willing and is willing to cross lines that there was a sort of bipartisan consensus you wouldn't cross he was willing to sort of activate the sort of worst parts of people's um psyches in ways that either just for political reasons, you thought you would lose if you did that, or for sort of um, ethical reasons, you know, both parties decided you wouldn't go there. Right. Um, explicit racism, right? It was really buried in the Republican Party right. o- o- over the decades. He, he, and so you you don't you don't believe that it's 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 more it's more of a party leaders. Um, Activating sort of some of the worst instincts in the in the public and that might be on yeah. the right. You think there's it's the other way. It's a movement that is forcing politicians to come to them. Right. I don't even. Know, well, I don't even forcing them. The, the, or pushing the, them. So like me, that's where the votes are. But basically, the most recent pivot point in our politics was November fourth, two thousand eight, when Obama won. Right. And the key thing wasn't just that Obama won. It's that as soon as the networks called it, McCain went on to do his concession speech, which was incredibly gracious, that began with acknowledging that he had won legitimately. And that the fact that he was an African-American president represented an important kind of progress for this nation. And what we all didn't understand in the moment was that the Tea Party reaction was not just to having an African-American president. It was to Republican leaders who were willing to say that was legitimate. And the Tea Party was not, it was the racist movement against Obama, but it was also a purge of Republican leaders, rhinos, who were willing to play this game that way. And birtherism was just disorganized denialism, right? Yeah. It was what the people who did not want to believe that this that election was legitimate did, yeah. right? And they hit the jackpot because they, as a 
dissident political movement to go after Republicans, they lucked into the next election being 2010 when it was just a disaster for Democrats. And you got like 82, 83 new Republicans fueled by Tea Party anger, right? Yeah. And, and that began a movement that has totally um, turned, that has totally captured the Republican Party, right? Yeah. And so- un- It's bottom up, not top it's down. It's totally bottom up. Yeah. And the bottom is not just- spontaneous is driven by and organized by the white evangelical churches in those states and by Fox media generally, right? By the right-wing media, right? It is. It has created a view of Democrats for the third of America that lives in that world that like Democrats are the devil, right? And you have to go out and do this. And Republicans who compromise are compromising with the devil. And so the party that McCarthy was trying to get become speaker of, 85% of the people in that caucus were elected after Obama as part of this Tea Party fury. And 64 something percent were elected with Trump or later, right? These are not people who are putting their finger in the wind to stay elected and go right. These are the people with the pitchforks coming to do what exactly what they're doing. And they're not gonna say, hmm, maybe we need to be sophisticated now. And elect someone, you know, nominate someone different because that's not where the churches are. That's not where Fox is. And that's the, the energy, right? The, and the idea that Trump, like by creating an anti-MAGA majority, like turned the politics in a very different direction that really is not acknowledged. When Trump won in 16, um, he, everybody understood that the fulcrum of American politics was Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And at that point, um, Democrats had one governor in those five states and four of the 10 senators and none of the state legislatures, right? Now they have four of the five governors and the fifth is the exception that proves the rule, which is Kemp because he doesn't quite look MAGA because they stood up to Trump. Right, they've gone from four senators to nine senators. They've gotten three state legislative, but they like MAGA has won almost no statewide election in these states that were supposed to be giving Republicans a structural advantage in the electoral college. But no one is seeing that, right? The right if this these they that's the anti that's the levy against MAGA, and so MAGA is a movement that has taken control of states that represent half the population, and Trump brought it to the national stage, but it can't win there, and it's not losing where it already has a grip. It's not losing where it has no. a grip. No, yeah. right. DeSantis, like all these people, right? Yeah. They're taking their states further red. Two questions about 2024. Yeah. How do you, do you, let's start with Biden. Do you see a challenger to him or no? I, I don't do that. The, uh, <laughs> right, I mean, I mean, I, I, from this from this interview, I think you get that. I mean, I'm thinking about not the ephemeral day to day on this, which can get pushed around, but the larger forces at work here, and like so many different. It, like if if you've been doing it as long as you, I know that like you never know what's going to happen, right? On on that level, yeah, and. Uh, you know, and you just have to be humble about that. But 
you can see the bigger things, and that's what, and you can't get distracted by the little things. What are the big things on the Democratic the big, side? On, on the Democratic side, it's mostly just staying united and not. Um, I mean, it, it's going to be a terrible twenty twenty four, right? Because most, you know, the all the different modal scenarios are that it looks pretty much like twenty twenty that. The Democrat, again, like all things being moderately equal, is going to win another 7, 10 million vote national popular victory. It's going to be somewhat close in the electoral college states, and the Republicans won't believe it was legitimate. And we're right where we are. And, but in between then and now, uh, between now and then, um, I think that the Republicans taking control of the House changes the dynamic a lot because I think what people who are not watching Fox News are not thinking about is that even if all of these um, so-called investigations they're planning to do don't break through and are silly or whatever, they're daily fodder for the story that Republican voters are going to be told about what who Biden is, who Democrats are, and that's going to be plenty. People are going to be really wound up on that side. And given that this is a party that doesn't tamp down on its um, militia allies and all that, you can expect more violence even than there was this time. So it's a crisis coming. You don't believe, as some people think, that highlighting um, the face of the Republican Party with the House and some of these investigations that are will be seen by a lot of people as kind of fringy, that this is actually helpful uh, to Biden in the same way that losing the House in 94 was to Clinton's reelection and losing the House in 2010 was to Obama's? Well, I'm not answering that question under duress because <laughs> I think that questions that when you think about the challenges in front of the country, like climate change, healthcare, all of those things, like to think, well, was it a good thing that Republicans won the House? Is like a real right. like no good point. He can't, you know, can't get anything done. He can't right, sign anything. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, like we yeah. like momentum was being built up right. towards real solutions to real problems. Yeah, and and not just that. But to go back to what I was saying about building up credibility in our institutions, people outside of the Fox information sphere, were accepting the idea that DOJ could do Mar-a-Lago, could do an investigation, and that's going to get disrupted. Forget about good or bad, but what I guess yeah. what I mean is the effect. You're saying is the effect right, of Republicans the effect. controlling the House is massive amounts of right-wing meat uh, played up right. on, on Fox News. and it's going to make it harder to win gonna, like, the other states, yeah. Okay, that's, and it's going to yeah. turn Biden into this like real caricature in a way maybe that they haven't had the advantage of doing. Yeah. What I was saying is another effect is that the, it, it shows the country right. that this is who the Republicans are, and you don't want that, and um, it leads to his reelection. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Okay. That that that's that is the dynamic, and that's what I was saying. Except is that it just heightens it, right? I mean, it becomes arguably the fifth time we're having this election, right? Because yeah. for many many people, understood that's what it was in 2016, right? And so it's like again, we're going to have to show that a majority of Americans do not want it, 
but we have a constitutional election system that keeps letting them ask this question. Yeah. You have this running battle with the popular with the popularists. Yeah. Um David Shore and some of these other young analysts who um you've taken to task uh, occasionally. What's um what's the nature of that debate? So I'm sure this uh, this readership knows a lot about it already. Uh, and the, I mean, our listeners are surely aware of um, you know this. I, I mean, on the on its surface, it's like what's 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 the debate? All these guys are saying is do popular things, and that'll help you get elected, right? And so there's um, a style of argumentation called Mott and Bailey, which is where you say something like irrefutable. And then you say something else that's crazy. And then when people come after the crazy, you say, how can you say this undebatable thing is false? Right? And that's what they do. Right? If If all they were saying was say popular things, then, you know, or get more than half the electorate to vote for you, (laughs) um, then, like, no one would disagree with them and no one would listen to them at all, right? It's that they use the the statement of the obvious to credential them to say things that are ridiculous. And it's the ridiculous things that are problematic, right? right? Give some examples. (laughs) So the the, the core thing, right, which we've gone through in this whole interview, is that that saying popular things matters as as the only thing right that it is such a like down the polling rabbit hole view right that the only thing that could possibly affect the election has to be something you could ask on a survey and that's just absurd and i understand why people even pay attention to it that comes through in a lot of this interview is that Reading polls in a sort of brain dead way is a big problem. Yeah, for yeah. both analysts and and the press. Right, and, and, and it's, some things you can't get at in a survey. Right, right, and so it's like the like something that they actually commented on that like really demonstrates what's going on here, which is um, abortion. Right, for years, abortion has polled in a way that made people think that. That voters generally would not care, were not that invested, and it wasn't that an important issue, right? And the reason is because the way you can find that, you try to find that in a survey is by asking a question like, well, if they overturned Roe or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, if you don't believe Roe's going to be overturned, you really are, in every sort of psych experiment, a really poor. Um, predictor of how you're going to behave. Got it. Right. If you would ask someone like in the 60s, if they said, hey, cigarettes cause cancer, would you give up smoking tomorrow? They'd say yes. And of course they did and they didn't, right? Because you don't know how you're going to behave. But if you look at a poll and say, like that, you say, oh, all we got to do is say cigarettes cause cancer and no one will ever smoke again, right? And so they're doing the same mistake, right? They're looking at people who can't get themselves to understand how they would react if they heard it. And then even as importantly, if not more, there's no way they can predict how they're going to react when their most pro-choice friends go 
just become mobilized about it, right? When the a few people in their social circle really start saying, oh my God, do you see what the Supreme Court did and all of that, right? They That's contagious, yep. right? And polling does not allow people to predict how contagions will affect them, right? Yeah. And so yeah. the to think that the world is as controlled. It's like the famous prison experiments. If you would ask yeah. it on a polling question, right? If you were one of the captors, would you start being right. really cruel to the prisoners? Right, exactly. Surprising, no. Right, exactly. Right, but the popularist will acknowledge nothing outside the four corners of a survey, and say that if you have a strategy that can't be shown to be successful in a survey, that it's foolish that ridiculous, you know, and that's the problem, right? And so you had that, and to me, this is, you know, complicit in the problem of voters not knowing what was going on, was that this group of analysts, this group of popularists, were beating up Democrats in 2021 for their position on crime or inflation or something like that, and discounting or, you know, uh, being skeptical of the importance of the J6 hearings, right? And in fact, some of them saying, oh, no, no, don't go near that right. because what our polls show that what voters care about is this, right? is inflation or crime or whatever it is, right? And it's this sort of like single mind, well, it's not in, this is the poll, these are the stats, you've got to believe it. And it's just foolish. So this comes up a lot, and it's the question is, how do you distinguish between issues that you see as existential, incredibly important, going to drive uh, the vote, um, when the survey data is not telling that story? Uh, the Hopefully, the rest of this interview will make me not seem hopelessly naive. <laughs> um, but I would say by like doing what's actually important, right, that that you don't need a poll to say that there's a problem with an armed mob taking <laughs> over the Capitol and then the president rooting them on and saying maybe he'd pardon them and then the party, that party, not distancing themselves but saying, yeah, we want more of that. Like, kind of don't need a poll to figure out that's important for the future of the country. Michael, thank you very yeah, much for doing you. this. What's next for you now that you're leaving the AFL? Well, just what I've been doing, except I don't have the burden of getting paid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Almond is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>